Um, how many of you are board game players? You guys play board games with your families? My, my, my family and I, um, oh, let's do this first. I always, I'm going to always forget this. If you're a fourth or a fifth grader, uh, that's the direction to go. Before we get to conversations about board games, find your leaders out there uh, for our kids' ministry. Um, but back to board games, my family's... We're gamers. We play board games. Um, Settlers of Catan is a big one for my family. And uh, yesterday, Jonah and Isaac, my two sons and I, we were in a Settlers of Catan tournament uh, here uh, doing a fundraiser for the local Young Life area. And uh, a couple of us made it to the semifinals, and then we got creamed, right? Um, But I I want to admit something to you all. Uh, This didn't happen yesterday, but when I play board games with my family, I have cheated, Sometimes it's just too easy to like take the brick you need instead of the wheat you got, right? Or take just a little bit off the top when you're the banker at Monopoly, right? Or just take that shortcut in Candyland. It doesn't matter what you pulled because you just need to get that game over with, right? But listen, it's not really cheating if you don't get caught, right? Like is that, that's the house rule. Like I think if, if, if you don't get caught, uh. so Let me ask you some hard questions today. Is cheating at Candyland okay if you don't get caught, right? Are you still a good person if you cheat at Monopoly? Yes. Okay, wow. We have uh, our moral compass in the front row says it's cool to do that, right? I know these are the deep and powerful questions you came to church to wrestle with uh, in terms of board games. But honestly, a little bit, they kind of are. Because the answers to questions like that kind of define how flexible our morality is. Uh, So, like, is it wrong to use somebody else's Netflix password? Are you a good person if you are sweet to your mother but rude to a stranger? Is it okay to perform testing on a handful of animals in order to save uh, a, a, a bunch of human lives? Are you good if you frequently give money to help refugees but cheat on your spouse? We have trouble with morality as people. We wrestle with it every day in big and in small ways. Uh, In fact, um, there's been a poll over the last few years around like New Year's resolutions And for a number of years running, one of the top resolutions is be a better person. Something inside of us wants to be better people. But what does that really mean? Does that mean giving more money to help the refugees? Does it mean not cheating at candy? What does it mean? I'm going to fix that problem for you today. Not from my perspective, but from God's perspective. Last week, we started a new series as we moved through the book of Genesis called My Brother's Keeper. And we noted this kind of tug we set into these questions with as uh, an individualistic culture while the Bible remains this collectivist, a corporate culture. Uh, And so, am I my brother's keeper is the question that was asked in Genesis chapter 4. And it was a specific question about a specific brother. Am I, Cain, my brother Abel's keeper? It's a story that God gives us about two individuals. And to be honest, we kind of love stories about individuals because we're an individualistic culture, aren't we? Uh, Maybe we love those kinds of stories, I think, because it's easy to get out of the moral of it. 
Because you can ask questions like, well, I don't know. Did Abel have it coming? We don't know the whole story, right? We don't know anything about their relationship. Well, is it really Cain's fault that God didn't like his sacrifice? Uh, That's not, maybe he didn't know that God didn't like fruit. I don't know, right? We do that kind of stuff all the time. We hear a story on the news uh, of someone uh, being oppressed by someone else. And we say, I don't know, maybe they deserved it. Maybe they were a criminal. Maybe they had drugs in their system. Who knows, right? We like stories of individuals because it's easy for us to kind of move our way around it. But God does something interesting in the book of Genesis. So much more with this story than I think meets the eye. Because it's not just a story about a conflict of two individual brothers. And when we explore what happens next in it, Cain's question, am I my brother's keeper, becomes far more than just about his own family. I think it's going to guide us a little bit today in terms of how we wrestle with our morality and what it means to be good. So if you have a Bible today, we're going to be in Genesis chapter 4 and 5 and 6. We're going to move our way through those chapters a little bit. Uh, And I want to start back where we left off last week in Genesis 4. Uh, This is the story of Cain and Abel and he's killing his brother. And uh, we're going to pick up at verse 11, uh, which is God's response to this incident. And this is what the scripture says. Now, you are under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. So this was God's response to Cain murdering his brother. He says, this is your punishment. Interestingly, God repeats the consequences that he gave to his father. Back in chapter 3 in the Garden of Eden, uh, Adam and Eve, they choose themselves over God. And God says to Adam, you are going to toil to get food from the ground. Says the same thing to his son Cain, right? Like father, like son. But if you look closely at that, that last line where he says, you are going to be a restless wanderer on the earth. That's weird. What a weird thing to say uh, in response to that. What does that mean? Here's a lens. Here's a perspective on that. Cain was a farmer, right? He was raising uh, crops, and his job up until this point was to maintain his farm, his fields, right? To work his plot of land and to stay put. His brother, on the other hand, raised cattle, raised sheep, raised animals. He was a shepherd. And a shepherd by nature keeps moving around. Because you're going to graze this area over here, but then you got to go find other pastures, other, other, uh, other food to graze from. He can't just stay in one field. He doesn't work the ground for the food. He wanders with his flock. So in other words, God says to Cain, you are going to have to learn the job of your brother, the one you just killed. You will need to learn what it's like to be like him as a result of what you've done. Have you ever heard the phrase, walk a mile in someone's shoes? That is Cain's consequence. He has to walk in his brother's shoes. He has to see the world through his brother's eyes. 
He has to become like his brother, to understand his brother, maybe to develop that bone of compassion in his body that somehow he missed and brought him to this choice of hurting his brother. It's like God is giving Cain an assignment, right? He's like, not your punishment is actually to learn something. It's to learn some morality. Because morality isn't just a sense of what's right and what's wrong. It isn't just a set of rules or laws that we just make everyone follow. Deep down, morality is understanding how our actions impact others. Morality requires empathy for other people. Which would totally make sense because as we talked about last week, the book of Genesis is a story about the seeds of a community. The book of Genesis sets the stage for the nation of Israel, for a people that God is developing, a society. And something about what God is building into these people requires empathy for others. I love this quote from American poet and philosopher Chris Jamie, who says that all men are born firstly with the instinct to protect themselves, but few grow to really love themselves and even fewer learn to love their neighbor as themselves. That's the simplest definition of empathy, isn't it? Love your neighbor like yourself. So that's a great question for you and I. When you hear in the gospels, Jesus talking about loving your neighbor like yourself is one of the greatest commandments to following God. What does loving your neighbor really mean to you? How much does empathy play in that decision, in those choices to loving your neighbor? Have you ever thought about it like that? So God gives Cain a consequence for his actions. And his consequence is you got to learn to have some empathy for your brother and for others. How does Cain respond to this? You know, God says, you're going to be a restless wanderer. You're going to learn how to see the world through your brother's eyes. What does Cain do? Verse 16. So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and he lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain made love to his wife. She became pregnant and gave birth to Enoch. Cain was then building a city and he named it after his son Enoch. So Cain doesn't wander the earth, does he? Instead, he builds a city. In other words, he says, listen, I don't want to be trying so hard to get food from the earth. I'm going to build a city and make other people do it for me. Right? God nudges him in this right direction, but he refuses to take any personal or moral responsibility for what's happening. He finds a workaround. He never learns empathy because he says, that's something I'm not interested in. I'm going to work around it. So instead of becoming like his brother and, and, and wandering like a shepherd with sheep, he just builds a city and stays put. It's interesting because I think God grants him this opportunity to learn and to grow from the mistakes that he made. But instead, he refuses to take the opportunity, refuses to learn how his choices impact the people near him and around him. And instead, he looks for a way out. I think we do that too, honestly. I think we are often prone to finding our own ways out, particularly of developing empathy. In fact, one way we do it is by legislating our morality. So here's a little exercise. Take out your phone for a minute. Take out your phone, maybe open up a notes app or write something down. If if you got a sermon notes you're doing there. And I want you to think about and write down one thing 
that is taking place in our world today that you would say is bad, is harmful to people, right? One thing that you would say, this is a bad thing in our world right now. It could be a habit that's just dangerous to people you love. Uh, It could be a social issue that we talk about in the media all the time. There's a whole list of them that uh, may spark you. Honestly, it could just be a pet peeve that you really hate about people around you. Something in the world that you would say, this thing, I don't like it. It's bad. Now, what do you do if you think your fill-in-the-blank is harmful to people? How do you stop it? Well, most of us, you make a rule. Don't do this anymore, right? Uh, You pass a law that tells people they cannot do this anymore, and the problem is just fixed. Except it's not, is it? It's not fixed at all. Because what's happening in the lives of other people that put them in this situation with your fill in the blank? What's happening that got them to that point? Can you empathize with them a little bit? Can you understand what drove them to that choice or that situation? And if you did understand that, would you be motivated to do something about those situations as well? Because if not, we tend to just be a slave to the law. We're just legislating our morality. It's one way I think it's easy to escape building empathy in our culture. I'm not saying don't put good rules in place. Don't put good laws in place. I'm saying don't stop there. Don't let the laws and rules become the only facet of your morality. If so, we are Pharisees. We're no different from them. Instead, what would it mean for us to develop empathy for people in those situations? Because God is deeply invested in the human project. We are now a wind-up toy that he wound up at the beginning and set off in motion. God is actively steering you and I every day. And God's not simply legislating our morality. He's guiding us towards how we understand each other. He's guiding us towards this empathy, just like he was trying to uh, guide Cain. And Cain had to be separated from God's community, God's people, because he was a danger to them. But... I wonder if he had taken God's consequence, if he had developed a sense of empathy, if he could take on that moral responsibility, was there a chance that he could have been restored back to his people? Our God is a restorative God. He's always putting things back together. I wonder how it could have gone if Cain sought to develop the empathy that God was leading him towards. So now let's jump forward. All that's kind of going on in chapter four, going on in this interaction between Cain and his family and the Lord. Let's jump forward to to the next chapter, chapter five. And we're about just to see how much this sense of moral responsibility and empathy matters. Because chapter five is a very exciting chapter in the Bible. It is an entire chapter that is a list of names, right? Genealogies, your favorite part of the Bible, uh, the part you skip over at Christmas time when you're reading the Christmas story about Jesus, right? Don't do that. There's a lot going on in family genealogies in the Bible. And this one is the first. 
It's the first genealogy in Genesis. And this is what it starts off with in Genesis chapter 5. This is the written account of Adam's family line. When God created mankind, he made them in the likeness of God. He created them male and female and blessed them. And he named them mankind when they were created. Now the genealogy starts. We recap the first two chapters. Now, when Adam lived 130 years, he had a son in his own likeness, in his own image, and named him Seth. After Seth was born, Adam lived 800 years and had other sons and daughters. And altogether, he lived a total of 930 years, and then he died. So interesting. Notice, when the genealogy begins, Cain is not in it. Seth is now the son, the line of Cain. Abel is dead. Cain has been disowned. Seth is the replacement son. And the narrative focuses on this idea that we're doing a fresh start here, right? Because Cain couldn't carry on the building of God's community, Seth will. And so the genealogy in, 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 in chapter 5 through chapter 6, it provides a list of 10 generations from father to son, from Adam through his son Seth, all the way to Lamech and his son Noah. And most of this list is exactly the same as genealogies we tend to read in the Bible. It's so-and-so lived this long, he had this son, then he died, and now his son. We'll do it with him. But we stop at Noah in, in, in verse 28. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he had a son. He named him Noah. And now the rhythm changes and said, he will comfort us in the labor and the painful toil of our hands caused by the ground. The Lord is cursed. After Noah was born, Lamech lived 595 years and had other sons and daughters. After Noah was 500 years old, he became the father to Shem, Ham, and Japheth. So the genealogy ends here. It was one father, one son, and now we end with Noah, and he has three sons. And so the, the community, the people of God are about to grow even more. But we have this weird little aside. And Lamech says, maybe my son Noah will bring us comfort from the toil of the soil of the earth. Generations later, they're still wrestling with this problem. This was Adam's curse, right? It never got addressed with Adam. It got passed down to his son, Cain. He never addressed it uh, when, when he had the opportunity to develop empathy. And now we have a real problem on our hands. Because 10 generations later, Lamech is wondering, will we ever be rid of this problem? And we get to Genesis chapter 6, verse 5. The Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth and that every inclination of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on earth and his heart was deeply troubled. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race I have created and with them the animals, the birds and the creatures that move along the ground for I regret that I have made them. But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. So God gives us a story of individuals, a brother and a brother. And it's easy to kind of reason out of that because we don't know the whole story. But then God follows that story with a genealogy and a story of the community. Because this isn't just an individual problem. This lack of empathy, this self-centered way of living, it has now impacted everyone. 
10 generations later, the story has ballooned into an impact for the entire world. Cain refuses to deal with his sin. And his children and his children's children, 10 generations deep, are forced to repeat the cycle. And they built a world without empathy. Generational sin is a real thing. We are so individualistic that we tend to struggle that, to think that our choices shape those around us, right? We tend to think this is about my choices, my freedom. It's almost crazy for us to think that our choices actually impact people we haven't met yet. Our children's children beyond us, but it's true. Cain never imagined that his choice might cost his kids something or his grandkids, but it does. Am I my brother's keeper? I mean, the message of Genesis is clearly yes, but also you're your son's keeper and his daughters and her daughters and their sisters and their brothers. If we are a people who are, are, are drawn to build empathy for each other, do we have empathy for the generations to follow? Before, we, before God destroys the world with a flood, this lack of empathy uh, kind of community, there is a flash of hope in verse 8, right? But Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. What does that mean? Maybe Noah will break this generational curse. After 10 generations later, maybe Noah is the superhero that we need, and he finds favor in the eyes of the Lord. Whenever we read that in the Bible, we tend to think about it, and rightly so, as Noah was a good guy. He was a righteous man. In fact, Hebrews 11 verse 7 talks about Noah. By faith, Noah, when warned about things not yet seen, in holy fear, built an ark to save his family. By his faith, he condemned the world and became heir of the righteousness that is in keeping with the faith. Noah was a righteous man. I think we misunderstand righteousness all the time. Because we think of being a righteous person as someone who keeps the rules, keeps God's laws. Just like morality, we tend to think of righteousness as something individual about ourselves. In fact, lots of us are concerned with righteousness these days, it seems like, especially in the church. Because we ask questions like, well, who should be allowed to do what in the church? Who can serve communion? who can preach on a Sunday, who can lead our children, right? Go back to our fill in the blank. If our fill in the blank sin in their lives uh, is present, what should we keep them from? Or even further, if they don't see the world or, the, or, or our faith in the same way I should, maybe I shouldn't even associate with them because I need to be on the right path. I need to be righteous. These days, we are very concerned about the right way to do things, aren't we? What you may not realize is that throughout scriptures, whenever you see that word or that idea of righteousness, you almost always find righteousness paired with another word. In Amos verse five, or chapter 5, it says, Let justice roll on like a river, righteousness like a never-failing stream. Psalm 33, the Lord loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of his unfailing love. Proverbs 29, verse 7, the righteous care about justice for the poor, but the wicked have no such concern. We spend a lot of time thinking about righteousness, 
we do not spend as much time thinking about justice. We spend a lot of time thinking about what is the right way for me to act or think or behave. God seems to spend a lot of time naming that your righteousness is dependent on how you impact other people. Specifically those on the margins. Because when the Bible talks about righteousness and justice, it also almost pairs it always with mercy. Right? Mercy is an action uh, about how we relate to people who are missing something. Mercy for the poor, for the fatherless, for the widows, for the oppressed. God always talks about this. So justice is just this action that righteous people take on behalf of Christ. And it's often helping people who are missing something get what they need. I love this quote from Khalid Latif in New York University. I would say that a strong basis to knowing you are a good person can be rooted in reflecting on how you treat those who are underserved and underprivileged in relation to you. The ones that I could fully get away with treating poorly or not even doing anything for, what am I doing for them? I am learning that I care a lot more about righteousness than justice these days. Justice is this action that righteous people take when they understand God's definition of morality. When they understand that God designed us and leads us and nudges us towards building empathy towards each other, particularly for those who are missing something. Are we so focused on righteousness that we ignore justice and mercy and empathy? God's always nudging us toward our people so that we can build empathy and be restorative to one another. Are we? I mean, I'll be honest. One of the most, one of the important conversations I'm personally having with God lately uh, that I've been wrestling with him is, is about my community. It's about my community in the world, in the nation, in this uh, particular community here. Because I've just simply observed a lot of missing justice for the sake of righteousness. And as a pastor, there are days where it feels like the message of Christ is not even making a dent in the world we live in, in our community, where God's grace is not translating into our quest for morality. And it is easy to grow to resent your community when that's true. And I have at times. And so I've been praying. I've not been praying that everybody would just do it the way I want them to do it. Okay, I do pray that once in a while. But I have been praying for compassion for my community. I have been praying to understand instead of become angry, to move toward instead of away. And I'm recommitting myself to developing empathy. I have to. Because it is God's way of building a community, and it's the only way God's community can work. So God drove Cain to develop empathy for his brother, and he chose to avoid it. Generations later, the world without empathy needed to come to an end. It may just be worth our time to develop a sense of empathy. And so I want to give you three things today. Three, th- three ways that you can practically work to develop your empathy in a new way. And the first one is this. Talk with new people, not just to them. We kind of do that, right? Trying to imagine how someone else feels often isn't enough. Uh, The solution is a little easier. Ask them what it's like to walk a mile in their shoes. Spend time with people that are different from you or are new to you. 
Ask them about themselves rather than tell them what you think. Learn about where they come from and who they are. Recognize what makes them happy, what makes them stressed or sad. Talk with new people, not just to new people. Secondly, try out someone's life, right? Don't just stand in someone else's shoes. Walk in their shoes. Find a way to enter the world that they live in with them. If someone's behavior is problematic to you, find out why. I mean, for example, if it's your teenager, start by acknowledging like that behavior that's happening. Maybe they're feeling stressed out about something. Consider what it's like to live her daily life. What her bus ride might feel like. How much homework he might have. How much sleep they might be getting. Understand what it's like for people in other situations. So try out someone's someone else's life. And then thirdly, I'd encourage you to consume widely, not narrowly. Because we live in a world of echo chambers these days. We can consume media and culture often in a very narrow, one-sided manner that repeats the same things over and over again. So expand your input. Hear how others are viewing the same situation through a different perspective. Maybe it's who you follow on social media or who you listen to. Maybe it's a different perspective than the one you're used to. The goal isn't about who's right. The goal is to understand and build empathy. So let's close with our most important question. Is it cheating if I don't get caught? Is cheating at Candyland a problem if my kid doesn't know it? I think perhaps that's the very wrong question to ask. The right question might be, how does my cheating impact the person I'm with? How does it shape them into the future that might play out and might grow inside of them? How do my actions impact the people around me? That's a better question. What does it mean to be a good person? Honestly, the short answer might just be empathy. Empathy might be the driving force behind how God's people have acted for generations and hopefully will for generations to come. Let's pray together and go to God with a request for that. God, we love you and we recognize that we are often better at loving you than, better, than loving our neighbor. And God, I, I confess that it's easy to develop um, a resentment or a build a barrier or a wall uh, between me and other people, perhaps people who don't think like me or live like me. And God, I know that is not what you would have for your people. So God, may we learn the lesson of Cain who decided to settle down and hide himself in his city rather than walk a mile in his brother's shoes. May we learn the lesson of your people. May we be driven towards empathy towards one another. God, may we consider how loving your neighbor is more than just a saying, God, but impacts our hearts, impacts our minds and our actions and our choices. God, we lay all this before you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.